past few weeks, I've been putting this little graph up at the top of your page that outlines um, the remainder of Isaiah as I see it. And I, I stole this from uh, a commentator uh, whose book I have at the house, so I, I don't claim credit for this. But I found it to be really helpful. You will see that um, after this week, we're going to hit sort of a focal point for this last chunk of Isaiah, which uh, Walton's going to lead us through talking about the hope that we have in Christ. Um, leading up to that, we're going to read about Yahweh showing up as the divine warrior. Um, and that's, that is this week. Uh, let's see, what do I want to say other than that? This, the, God showing up as the divine warrior is sort of an answer to the problem that was posed last week with all of this unrighteousness and all of this hypocrisy that is going on in the um, in the Jewish traditions and customs of the day, the 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 sacking of Jerusalem by Babylon is for the people of the time. It's a it's a mini version of the Day of the Lord. You'll see this theme show up throughout the prophetic. Uh, portion of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. For us, the day of the Lord means the arrival of Christ. That is the day of the Lord as we know it. There are plenty of many days of the Lord that happen all over the You might have a day of the Lord in your own life, this sort of apocalyptic moment where God shows up and just wrecks everything. This happens. God does this from time to time. Um, this might happen on an individual scale. This might happen on a community scale. Um, you know, it's, it's not wrong to talk about some of these apocalyptic moments that we see in history as, a, as miniature versions of the day of the Lord. Um, the example that popped into my head just now as I'm just talking is Hurricane Katrina. You can see when Hurricane Katrina arrived, that was like an apocalyptic moment for the people in that time. Um, I visited New Orleans recently. And um, you can still see signs that something terrible happened. Like it, the, the, the residue of that hurricane is still there. Um, all right, so if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and all the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We've talked about the Sabbath before. This came up before we started talking about fasting. Um, I said it then and I'll say it again now that I'm still personally wrestling through what this means for me today as a Christian because it's pretty clear in this portion and in the portion that we read before of Isaiah that um, God takes the Sabbath very seriously. Um, and yet it somehow looks different today in the church age. And I'm, I'm still wrestling through that myself. Um, between when we last talked about it, and now, I may have made a little bit of progress in my thinking on this. So, 
I can share a little bit of how I've been thinking through it. When we talked about fasting, we said that fasting, and Craig actually was the one who mentioned this, in a passing comment, Craig said that there are very few Old Testament commandments about fasting. It doesn't show up very often in the Jewish code, but it was assumed that it would be done. It was a regular custom and a regular practice. And so when we fast, we're not, we're not so much going back to an Old Testament custom as we are looking forward to something that hasn't happened yet. It's a forward-focused ritual. That's what fasting is. As opposed to doing it because that was in the Old Testament code. Does that make sense? We fast because there's a wedding feast coming that we don't get to take part in yet. That's why we fast. We fast because our bridegroom isn't back yet. We fast because um, we are longing for Jesus' return. It seems to me that the Sabbath is the same thing. If we, if we practice resting in Christ during the week, we do so not because it was in the Old Testament code, but because there is a Sabbath rest ahead and we're practicing it now. Does that make sense? When Paul gives his admonition, or actually we don't know that it was Paul, I'm not going to say that, in the book of Hebrews, when whoever wrote Hebrews said, don't neglect meeting together, this is an admonition for what we're doing on Sunday mornings, whatever we're practicing now. The reason that he gives for us to make sure that we continue the ritual of going to church together is because the day is drawing near. That's the day of the Lord. The day is drawing near. The day is at hand. That's why we show up every Sunday morning. So I think that, I think that may be a clue. And that may help us to think through why we in the church age practice the Sabbath. It is true that we have rest in Christ and somehow... That covers our whole life. That is true. But we still have to practice it. We still have to ritually engage bodily with this stuff. Um, And it seems to me, the more I think about it, that that reason has, has to do with the return of Christ. And it has to do with the shalom at the end of all things. That is why we practice this every week on Sunday mornings. Okay, just throwing that out there. Talk to me. Let me hear what y'all think about that. So far, so good. <laughs> That's all I'm going for. So far, so good. Oh, what was the uh, translation of the first line uh, of verse 13 that you have? If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, it's using ESV. What do you have? Well, King James, the New King James says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, and I'm just wondering, what, what does that mean? <laughs> why, why your foot? And what's the significance of turning it away? It just says, turn away, turn your foot away. New American Standard says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do. 
about it like being trampled underfoot or, or like the thing about the sandals? It's possible. Sandals. Yeah, it's possible. Um, it could be. Yeah, it could have something to do with the sandals. It could have something to do with just with turning back your foot or turn away. It could refer to like the way the, your conduct, the path, you know, the way you live your life. That's often talked about as a kind of way or a kind of walking. Yeah. Um, so it could have to do with that. Well, well from what follows, it, turning, it sounds like turning your foot away from the Sabbath would be a good thing in this context. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, if we don't know, we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so turning, turning back your foot from the Sabbath is somehow honoring it, whatever that figure of yeah. speech meant. Mm-hmm. Figure speech is kind of lost on us. So. Bible talks a lot about where we put our feet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the feet, the foot, the foot is a is a euphemism for the whole person. Um, so when when God tells Moses to uncover his feet, that is that is a stand-in for bearing your entire person before God. It's being naked in the garden in the presence of Christ. That's that's. You remove the garment of skin when you're in the Holy of Holies. That's that's what that's about. What, yeah. what you got? The line immediately before it is the restorer of streets where people live. So it probably Maybe does stretching. have to do with walking. Yeah. Okay. Okay, anything else on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for men, not Correct. In as much as they knew what the day of the Lord was, I would say yes. Um, I imagine Isaiah was probably fasting a lot in preparation for uh, the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the coming of Christ. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and of course, Sabbath is also a very New Testament phenomenon too. Yes. Because it's taught a lot of the Gospels. Yes, absolutely. I don't remember years ago I was reading this thing about it. There was two wagon trains that set out in St. Louis or something going to California, and one was driven by a hard man who just didn't want to stop, just kept going. The other one was driven by a man who they stopped on Sunday, every Sunday, and they just stayed there and they just worshiped God. And they, you know, so and the, the, the first one wound up freezing, most of them froze to death trying to climb over the mountains. The other one just sailed right into California. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that that the Western world at large has acknowledged both Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Resurrection Day. Yes. Um, you know, the, the weekend. Uh, yeah. Of course, a lot of people have to work on weekend. <laughs> but, uh, but in general, it recognizes those as days of rest. Let me just point out, and I, I don't really have any particular point in saying this, but I think it's good that we all recognize it, that 
the Sabbath is unique to the Judeo-Christian story. Circumcision was not unheard of. It was rare, but it happened. Um, codes of ethics, like the law, were not unheard of. The Sabbath is unique. There is no other example of this that I have come across in my studies of ancient cultures. And I've done quite a bit of reading on this. Um, the Sabbath and the setting apart of the Sabbath as an institution by God, the ritual of six days of work and day of rest, that is a unique phenomenon to this story that we're a part of. Um, and it's a very important part of the story because it speaks to the work of Christ. The cross, and you all have heard me say this many times, the cross is the moment of new creation. What happens at the cross is everything that Genesis 1 was setting the stage for. Six hours of work, new creation work, and then Sabbath rest. Right, this is the pattern that's set forth for us in Genesis. And so all of these people who are trying to reconcile science and the Bible by pouring over Genesis 1 and trying to figure out, well, how does evolution fit in with this? They're missing the point of the story, y'all. Yeah. The point of Genesis 1 is setting the stage for the cross as the moment of new creation. Mm -hmm. if, if, if people haven't seen it, and you should try to find the film, Chariots of Fire, about American idols, yeah. missionary to China, an Olympic champion, a very intriguing film about the difference of worshiping on the Sabbath and not. Yeah, it's amazing film. Well, you know, Craig taught this in Bible study on Genesis that the whole purpose of creation is the revelation of the Son of God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Also, as Christians, though, we need to realize that in one sense, every day is Sabbath. I know we set aside a day and that's important, I get it. But at the same time, a recognition that we are in the Sabbath rest of God. And yeah. really, if we treat every day as the day of the Lord, we're going to be a lot better off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, intellectually I agree with you, but but the church calendar and the, the, the rhythm of life exists for a reason. And not every day is the same. And if this stuff doesn't take on flesh and blood in our lives. It's, it's just not real. I totally get it. It's just yeah. not real. Um, well, this is a problem for with uh, COVID and all, and yes. people are at home, and then so many people have not come back to the church, or to assemble, let's put it yeah. that way. Mm -hmm. And, it, yeah, I mean, it's sad. It's yeah. Sad. They're missing that, as you say, that really Yeah. I, I, I don't see a difference between saying, well, every day is the Sabbath, and... Uh, well, I don't need to go to church because I'm with God all the time. I don't see a difference between those two things. And we know that we're supposed to go to church because we know that these blessings that are available to us are conditional on us showing up to church. Hebrews so. gives us that instruction. Yeah. Do you know that the exactly. work began on the eighth day? You know, on the resurrection day, Christ was very busy. <laughs> and that is the uh, that is the starting point of the activity of the church. Yeah. So every day is the Sabbath, day of rest, but also every day is Resurrection Day, day of work. So these are two spiritual truths that um, you know maybe two sides of the same coin. Always.
always resting, always working. Yeah. Well, I think I think to kind of kind of maybe elaborate on David's point a little bit that I think one of the things that the Sabbath may be there for is to teach us and move us toward a more of a uh, and, and again one reason not all mm-hmm. uh, to move us toward maturing into making giving all of our time to Christ and so there is yet yeah, Sabbath is one day in terms of what was prescribed by the law and of course Jesus taught all you know all the things you know he taught you know uh, he, he fulfilled the law in his teaching on the Sabbath but it's also you know as you grow in Christ hopefully hopefully you're going to be more Sabbath like at least in terms of of dedicating your your days to the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, I think that's sort of the sanctifying of your life. Yeah. So I think that might be kind of more what he's getting at, you know, in terms of, I don't know. Well, I, I'm, I'm very much open to that. I'm still working through it, you know, myself. Yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm completely settled in my understanding of the Sabbath, and I'm just admitting that not, to all that of you. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work on the other days. It just means that, you know, it, Sabbath is, is a day devoted to God. You know what I'm saying? It's well, typically the Sabbath, the, the way you devote it to God is by not working. That's that's, that's how it was. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's 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 the part that I'm working through now. So, um, But, I mean, don't you think the purpose of that is ultimately to, is ultimately sanctification, growing closer to Him and more like Him? I mean, is it that the, the point of the Sabbath or the point of work? Well, I mean, the Sabbath is what I meant. But yeah. I guess you can say both. Yeah. yeah. Isaiah does say about the Sabbath here, um, call it a delight, you know, holy day of the Lord, honorable, and honor Him, and not do your own ways, not finding your own pleasures, not speaking mm-hmm. your own words. So, I mean, that's what we want. Yes. You know, in our I mean, that's just, that's just good Christian living. Mm-hmm. But an actual day of rest is very important. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. In our in our physical in our incarnation, which seems to be the important thing for us. Yeah. Our important time period. Uh, it is important. Well, I think there is. I think there is something important in this with seeking our own pleasure. There is something about if we're going to take Sabbath seriously. Then there's a there's a kind of setting apart the day to God that is more than just not working, and I think that may be what you're getting at. It is. is it, it's, it's, it's not just that, but it's it's. It's, it's not just watching the Super Bowl. This it's yeah. there's a seriousness to the right. Sabbath. And you, and you also the Sabbath is yet another example of something that is real and tangible to do, but it's also a symbol at the same time. Right. And we don't want to lose what the symbol is about. Yeah. The symbol is about. Being in Christ, being in God, being in Christ, in my opinion. Yes. And uh, and if if we if we only look at it from the standpoint of just not working, then we're missing. We're doing what the Pharisees did. Right. You know, right. So. I agree with that. I would say one thing real quick too is that for me, coming here on Sundays, I've been doing that now for since 1973. Mm-hmm. 
it's it resets me in a sense. Yes. Uh, it's almost like a chance to get, kind of kind of mm -hmm. let the past week go and ask God to help you through the next week or something. And, and then when you look back and see all the places where you messed up during the week, and it's like, okay, I get a chance to get get it washed away and get to start all over again. It's like a, it's like being born again every week. <laughs> For that, I am eternally thankful. Yeah. <laughs> well, how many times at the Eucharist table has Walton said, "Let us now begin again"? That's where the week begins, right there at the Eucharist table. All right. Let's go into chapter 59, shall we? <clears throat> Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Um, all right, so this is a hard teaching. Um, but this is the word of the Lord. So let's go forward with it. We already invoked Genesis 1. The way God makes the world in the old creation is through this word separation. He divides. He splits things apart. He creates boundaries and borders for things. And that is the method by which he makes the world. So as I said before, in the story of Genesis 1 is the, is the setting of the stage or the laying out the pattern of the entire rest of the story. Does that make sense? So separation and dividing the waters and all of the stuff that happens in Genesis 1 is supposed to make you think instantly of the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. It, it should be obvious when you're reading it that that's what Genesis 1 is about. Right? So, that separating border is the way that God establishes order and creates the world. Um, now, you all know what happens with that curtain veil in the new, in the new covenant, in the new creation. Um, but the the punchline isn't there if you don't see the pattern all the way leading up to it. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So He's not, saying you're you're stuck in the outer court. Mm -hmm. You don't get to go into the holy place. You still have that garment of skin around you, and you can't take your sandals off. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Well, if God creates by separating, look what we've done by separating. We separate ourselves from God. Yeah. That's yeah. our creation. Seems like there's only one, one prayer of communication that God can listen to from those who are in sin. And that's, I repent. Please forgive my sins. Yeah. And it opens up the well, that's what this next section, starting in verse 3, is going to be. It's going to be one big confession. So, yeah. Anything else on verses 1 through 2 before we get into that? The, 
the commentary that I read said that that phrase, making a separation, only elsewhere exists in Genesis 1. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm connecting those two things. The word separation shows up a lot, but that, that particular phrase and the way it's worded, it's hearkening back to the Genesis 1 story. Um, in the same way that the waters can't get onto the dry land anymore. It's just in, it's inaccessible. So... Yeah. Um, all right. Now the confession. To me, this is one of the great confessionals in Scripture. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. I'm just going to read this whole thing before we talk about it. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Now the, the, the person or the point of view switches. And he starts talking about us. Therefore justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, God, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Talk to me. Well, Stephanie, confession. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring this out next week, but I just see a connection here in verse 9. Uh, we hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in the gloom. Mm -hmm. Chapter 60, verse 1 begins with a rise, shine, for your light is come. The yeah. Glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So obviously, God has to take the initiative. Yes. Yes. Verse 14 there uh, has got kind of a mirror image uh, speaking of justice and righteousness. Um, without justice, there is, uh, you know, righteousness stands far away from us. Our, our favorite little verse from Psalm 85 mm -hmm. peace and righteousness, kiss. So um, it's only by grace, you know. Not, it's not justice that brings us to righteousness. It is mercy. Yeah. And peace 
peace that comes from, from uh, mercy from God. Yeah, you keep talking about iniquity too, but you know, six chapters earlier, he said the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yep. That's already been stated in this book. You know? Yeah, so who is doing this prayer then? That's the question. Yeah. Because he changes and he says, us. There's someone praying this to God on behalf of himself and everyone else. So who's doing this prayer? It's the servant of the Lord. That's who's doing it. Um, the suffering servant of the Lord. This, I mean, this is such a... He's ever making intercession. Yeah, there you go. This is such a big confessional that it's even quoted in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist, when he's preaching repentance, he says, you sons of snakes. Right, that's directly quoting this. Um, so, and, and that's a he's he's preaching repentance and preparing your heart for Christ's arrival. Um, so, a, a couple things that I'd like to bring out from this section. Um, one of my, uh, you've heard me say this before. One of my favorite uh, people that I read is a. A church father named Saint Ephraim the Syrian. He lived in the 400s A.D., so pretty early on. Um, he was a he was a hymn writer. He was never an elder. He was only ever a, a deacon, um, and he taught through hymns and through uh, writing songs for the church. And a lot of his songs are still used today in the Orthodox tradition. Um, he's more well known in that strain of Christianity, um, but he. He wrote a commentary on Isaiah, so I've been referencing him a lot as I've been studying this stuff. And one thing that he says um, when he's commenting, I think it was commenting on this passage in particular in his commentary, he said that um, our actions are, are audible to God. You know, we, we distinguish between word and action and how we think about things. Um, but to God, they're one and the same. So when we act, God hears that action as, as, a, as a confessional or as an, as an act of worship or as, as a statement of our faith in Him. Um, How do we know that? Well, um, you, know the, you know the saying, uh, actions speak louder than words? That's, the, that's a modern saying the same thing. He's making a statement that's... He's not making a literal statement. He's saying that your actions are how you speak. They're how you, how you live and your conduct is just as important, if not more important, than the words that you say. Not that words aren't important, but, um, but God cares about how we live. And so his commentary on this section is that all of their actions are telling who they are to God. They're declaring themselves to God through how they live. And we are declaring ourselves to God through how we live. Um, The other thing that I want to point out is the comparison to various animals throughout this section. He mentions a lot of different animals in this passage. Snakes, spiders, uh, bears... Uh, birds. How often are bears brought in Scripture? Not very often. 
now. Not very often. He actually says when doves crying. Yeah. Um, so just kind of a just kind of a big picture statement about that the fact that animals are used so much here it seems to me that in Christ we become more human and less like the animals. And we become more in his image. Exactly. That is the that's the way the Bible describes it. Yes. Um, what he's talking about is these these people who are living in utter sin and iniquity and he describes them as just being animalistic in various ways. But that's the overall point of what he's saying is they're they're behaving like animals. Um, you may recall, we've talked about it before, that um, you know the barbarians far outside the realm of Christendom were, were imagined to be dog-headed. Right? That's just kind of a similar thing. In Christ, uh, we become more human because we're more like Christ. And Christ is the true human. Fully God and fully man. Right, we are not fully man yet. Yeah, there's a uh, Hebrew idiom I've mentioned before, where if you're the very epitome of something, they would call you the son of that thing. Like Barnabas mm-hmm. means son of encouragement. Oh yeah. It's so encouraging. Well, okay. Is the son of man. He is the epitome. The the most man. human. The most human. Well, plus, if you look at all the idols that people built over the centuries. They're usually a mix of animal and human, which is important. Yeah, that's actually yeah, that's actually an important distinction. That's that's what he's talking about. These humans who have animal-like qualities, and sometimes in scripture it becomes a little more. Uh, that point is 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 brought home a little closer. You remember Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a cow there for a little bit. Um, God is making a point about the state of his interior. Um, well, he gives them all. That's, that's what happens in Rome. If that's, if that's the direction you want to go, God just says, have at it. Basically. Yeah. See where it'll take you. See where you wind up, you know, as being an animal. But, sorry, can I take up yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think to both of these points together, I, I think it's important to understand, especially St. Ephraim's point, is how anti-Gnostic this is. Mm-hmm. Um, if our actions are the same as words to God, then it, it, is, it points to the importance of the body and the yes. incarnation, uh, both of Christ's physical body, but us also having bodies. Like, if for Gnostics, the body didn't matter. <laughs> and so... Um, this speaks to the realization of the truth of the necessity of the body. Yes, right? Both St. Ephraim's point, but also us not being animalistic. Yeah. Uh, if Christ, as we proclaim, is the epitome of man, then we become more human in him, then there's a reason we don't want to be animalistic. Um, and I 
in our current culture, obviously, this switching back to a obviously more Gnostic understanding of things anyway. The body doesn't matter. Yeah. The body does matter. Well, and that's and that's great because it ties together what we talked about last week with this week because we talked a lot about the influence of Gnosticism in our thought today. If I could riff on that a little bit, because I, I almost tried, I almost uh, started this morning by cleaning up a little bit of what we talked about last week because I went back and listened to it, and I thought that maybe I should have hammered the point home even further, just how Gnostic our culture is. Um, I, can't, I, I mean, I said it, but I didn't, I, I, don't think I'm, I don't think I was serious enough about how I said it. The, there are so many ways that you can look at our culture today and tie it back to this, this view of the world that what happens in nature and with our physical bodies is wholly separate from anything spiritual, right? That's just how we think because we're, we're, we're products of our culture. And so we can't help but think this way. This is something that we have to contend with and fight against in our pursuit of truth as Christians. We have to actively push back against this way of thinking in our heads because it's so pervasive. Um, uh, I'll fly away, O oh glory, I'll fly away says the old hymn. That is not scriptural. That's not scriptural. Scriptural says that at the end of all things, God will come down to us and the saints will come down with him. It's the exact opposite of that hymn. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how much to say here because I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail. But I mean, even, I don't think I mentioned this last week, but even, even the notion of science comes from the Gnostic tradition directly the Gnostics gave birth to the alchemists and the alchemists gave birth to the scientific revolution so there's a direct line between Gnostic thinking and the science that gave birth to so much of how we understand the world I'm thankful for science y'all I'm not saying science is a bad thing but it shapes how we think and it assumes that God is unknowable science assumes that well it's focused on the physical exactly and Right. So one primary tenet of Gnostic teaching, and I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it over to you in just a second, but one primary tenet of Gnostic thinking is that God is unknowable. That's one of the keys of Gnostic teaching, is that the body has no relationship to God. That's why they despise the body, because they're trying to get closer to God, right? So the body is getting in the way, in the way they see it. Right, because God is wholly separate from anything physical. You see why the early church called this a heresy, because that is it's it's anti-incarnational. It's the exact opposite of the incarnation. Um, go ahead. Well, I'll repeat again. You've heard me wail away on this many times, but uh, in April, Lord willing, I'm going to have an with some brothers to teach the book of Romans again. Don't throw me in that part. But a good prepared. But in that first chapter, it does talk about the resurrection of Christ, and I, I definitely will take time to go over the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, and I will beat it to death because in my experience with Protestants, 
they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but when you show that it was a physical bodily resurrection, I, I've had hundreds of times when people say it's, we've never heard it before. So there's something missing in our, in our teaching and preaching yes. on this point. And yes. Which I, I agree, at least yeah. Gnosticism that, you know, the spirit world is everything is important about that, the body doesn't matter. Yeah, I would guess, I'm sorry. No, 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 you're good. You're good. I would guess that, you know, 80 or 90% of all Christians would say heaven is the end game. And, you know, even creedal churches who say we believe in the resurrection of the body, they just don't focus on that. They don't really take the meaning of that. Well, that is is a good thing about the creed, though, which we believe. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. But but for most people, you know, the resurrection yeah. of, of you know themselves and you know by the corporate church just doesn't even seem to cross their mind. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with that 100. Uh, percent Another core tenet of Gnostic teaching is that knowledge is supreme. I mean, the 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 word literally means knowledge. It's the Greek word for knowledge. Um, I, I, to Walton's point, I see that in Protestant Christianity. I don't know where and I say this as a Protestant, y'all. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know where yeah, I'm talking to myself. Yeah. But we we somehow we somehow made the gospel all about knowledge and nothing else. That as long as you as long as you know the soundbite, uh, uh, you know three-point thing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as long as you know that intellectually you're good. That's so different from how the church at large has viewed it. And it's, it's, a, Gnostic, it's a Gnostic way of seeing the gospel. The gospel is a story that you get to live in. Right? That's, that's body, soul, spirit, and intellect. That's everything. Um, and it's, it's way more than just whether you know you're saved or not. Um, so that's another example of how we are contending with Gnosticism today. In our culture, in our, in our churches, uh, this is a battleground. And really, this battleground was part of what formed a lot of church teaching. A lot of the theology that we can be grateful for today came out of wrestling with these heresies. So Gnosticism was a big one early on. Um, Arian theology was a big one. Um, at one time, there were more more Arians than non-Arians within within at least Western Christianity. Um, so, I mean, this is this is where our creeds come from is through wrestling with this stuff. And I suspect, although I don't know this to be the case, I suspect that that is partly behind why Ephraim said that about actions being. Um, such an important way of how God knows us is that he's he's reacting to these ideas that are going around that how we live doesn't really matter as long as our hearts in the right place or as long as we as long as we know that we're in um, Ephraim and these other church fathers are having to are having to fight against that and say no the way you live matters what you do with your body matters and it actually affects what you believe. These things are, these things affect each other. 
what you say informs how you live, and vice versa. But so. I think that informs, just to round this all back around to Bonhoeffer, uh, believe and obey, right? Yeah. Those who obey will believe. So if you're struggling with belief, then obey, and vice versa. Yes. But the other thing, too, is uh, the theater definition of a play is a man in action. And, uh, and so we grapple with it constantly, what, what is an action? You know, so, and really, lifting an eyebrow is an action. You know, lifting a pinky finger is an action. Just movement is an action. You know, so, mm -hmm. so, I mean, and so every action has to reflect who the character is. Mm -hmm. And so for us as humans, how, how are my actions reflecting who I am you know, in my relationship to God, especially? You know, so, and if it's screaming at your wife, that's not a very good action. <laughs> so, in fact, Peter says, if you treat your wife bad, God won't listen to you when you pray. That's in Scripture. So our actions, how we treat those around us, our actions in regards to other people are, are directly connected to our relationship with God. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Every action yeah. always has a reaction as well, too. So every action that we do, that's yeah. it's hard to surrender these things to God because we fly off the, yeah. off the cuff. And, and even these little tiny actions have meaning. Uh, Dan Rather used to be a news anchor. He had a way of reading a story and raising his eyebrow that told you exactly what he thought about that story mm -hmm. without saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, in, in communication, we we always we focus more. We believe more how something is being said as opposed to what's being said. So we we focus more on the method of communication more than on the message of communication. And so, even though you may give me a message. I'm, I am receiving the way you're delivering that message to me, and that's what I that's what I connect to. It's your actions of how you how you present it, and so that's why we talk all the time about trying to get all your arrows pointing in the right direction. Because if, if I'm saying if I'm saying one thing, but my body is saying something completely different, that's that's a that's a, a double-minded man, yeah. you know, unstable. <laughs> Very difficult. It's complicated. Well, let's uh, let's finish out this chapter uh, with what time we have left. And this, as Walton said, this is leading towards a great announcement that, behold, your light has arrived. Right? That stands in direct contrast to this, this dark confession. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now, again, I'll just say this one more time. That is in direct contrast to the Gnostic way of seeing the world where God is unknowable and has nothing to do with what's going on down here in the natural world. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what did he do about it? Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, which means to the end of the world. To the, he's going to fill up the map with this. He will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west 
and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind or spirit of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Okay, you are all familiar, I, I think, with the armor of God passage in Ephesians. Paul is directly quoting this. Now, there's something remarkable that's lost on us if all we know is that armor of God passage in Ephesians, but we're not familiar with this one. And I was not familiar with this one until preparing for this lesson. This was new for me. Um, In this passage, which Paul is quoting, it is God himself who puts on the armor. So when Paul is saying, put on the armor of God, he's speaking of of imitating Christ, of being clothed with Christ, of of um, participating with God in His in His uh, in His vengeance against the principalities. Okay, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate. Paul directly says, "Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation." Paul says, "Helmet of salvation." Right, so he's directly quoting this passage, and he's applying what Isaiah said about God. Paul is now saying of all Christians, you as little Christs are to do likewise. There's another phrase that he uses, I can't quote it exactly, but he says, put on Christ. So Be clothed in Christ. Yeah, yeah. so that's what's happening. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's battle clothing. Yeah. If I may, that yeah. make much sense that Christ would put on armor because he's the one that created Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. So is is your question who is he fighting? Or no, is your question no, no. Um, like put on the armor of God is yes. insinuating that God himself wears armor. Okay. And that doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Great question. I wish we had more than three minutes. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Um, I love that question and I don't know how to answer it in three minutes. <laughs> This is about, okay, so so nine times out of ten, when God is talked about in the Old Testament, it's talking about Jesus. This is one of those examples. So this is talking about Christ at the day of the Lord. Um, against the, the, against the principalities. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how deep to go down this trail. Doesn't he put on flesh? I mean, would that would that lead anywhere? Or takes it out? All right, I'm going to go to Revelation here. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, Revelation. Revelation. <laughs> it comes with a sword. That's what Jesus says he is now. These are all actions too. God's doing. God is acting. God is putting on. He's wrapping himself. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it. Just listen. It doesn't matter. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's Christ making war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Logos. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's you, by the way, were following him on white horses, following him into battle. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Um, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, I'm going to say this, and then this will have to be where we stop, uh, but hopefully this will foster further conversation. There is a way of talking about our salvation which is much closer to this way that we're not used to talking about because the main way that we talk about salvation is that it's a, it's a great cosmic courtroom and God the Father is the angry judge and Jesus is um, both our attorney and also the person who's going to take the punishment. Um, and we are uh, the defendant in the courtroom and Satan is the prosecutor. And that is usually how we think about how salvation works. Um, And it's not that it's wrong, but it's not the whole picture. Um, Because salvation is such a... There's no one analogy that can fully capture it all. The way that the early church talked about it was... um, the, The shorthand for it was a phrase that they call Christus Victor which has to do with our salvation being God wrestling us out of the hands of the devil and going down to hell and, and tearing open the gates and letting the captives free um, and, and Christ going to war on our behalf and being our warrior king who fights for us. This is oftentimes the way the Bible talks about salvation. And so, with this passage, that's what we're getting into. Um, God says, look, there's no one to intercede on behalf of my people. That's in verse either 15 or 16 here. He saw that there was no man and wonder that there was no one to intercede. So this is about salvation. So his own arm brought him salvation. God steps in and he says, all right, I will do it. And so... When it talks about God putting on this armor and going to war, this is a way in which Isaiah is talking about the coming salvation and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as an act of war on our behalf against the principalities that we were that we were slave to. Um, so, if I'm understanding yes. this correctly, um, I'm thinking of like when back in Genesis when God laid out the week on how we're supposed to, like, he didn't rest because he needed rest. It was a way to demonstrate what we are to do in him. Uh-huh. Is that the correct way of understanding this passage as well? At least uh, when it comes to armor. I mean, the armor is not for his protection. No, no, that's... Yeah. Um, the king, up until recent times, was the one who fights for his people. Um, the last the last time someone did this was I think World War One. It was Albert the First of Belgium. He fought on the front lines on behalf of his people. 
Um, it was a defensive victory, actually. They won the battle um, against, I believe, the Germans. Yeah. Um, that's the last time that's happened. We haven't had a king or a leader fight on the front lines for his people since. So the, the, it, this is kind of lost on us that when it's talking about God being a king, that, that means a warrior king. It's the king who is going to fight on behalf of his people in the same way that a groom would fight on behalf of his bride. Um, That's why Booth started the Salvation Army. Yeah. The Army of God. Army of God. Yeah. Sin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that this, this passage is in context of the incarnation. And, you know, God's Son put on flesh like a man. But like no other man, he did it with the righteousness of God and with salvation, you know, at his head and garments of vengeance against the powers and principalities. He is he is avenging us. Uh, uh, what's the other one? Clad with zeal, you know. I am filled with zeal for your house. So I mean, these are all aspects of God that were upon this man that Isaiah is talking about. Please keep discussing this. Um, let this facilitate further conversation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.